The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl here with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. Today, a lot more on tech's biggest stories and how to trade them today, from Dell to Zoom to Disney and more. But first, FTX executives taking to a Delaware courtroom for their first ever appearance before a bankruptcy judge. Our Eamon Javers is live on the scene there this morning. Morning again, Eamon. Yeah, good morning to you, Carl. They are starting here just in any moment now here in Wilmington, Delaware, with this bankruptcy of FTX. We just saw a gaggle of attorneys heading in here. The billable hours are going to be impressive on this one based on the number of attorneys who showed up for this hearing so far today. We'll see where we go uh, with this today and whether we learn anything more about FTX's assets and who all the creditors are. What we know so far is that FTX owes the creditors at least $3 billion. They could have over a million creditors involved in this bankruptcy before all is said and done. They've identified 216 bank accounts across 36 banks which have positive balances. So there is some room for optimism here for some of the creditors. The company said over the weekend that there are some of the assets are solvent inside some of the sub-entities that are inside FTX. So there's a lot of unpacking to do here. We just saw a bunch of filings uh, hit the docket here in this case just within the past couple of minutes. We're going to start pouring through those and they're going to get underway here uh, inside momentarily as well. And the big question uh, on everybody's mind is how much money does FTX ultimately owe and who does it owe that money to? Those answers we might get the beginnings of those answers today, but nobody is expecting to know the entire picture by the time this hearing is over this afternoon, guys. Back over to you. All right. Eamon Javers, thank you. And now let's kick off today's feed with a look at hardware, courtesy of Dell. Shares on the move after a week than expected current quarter revenue guide as the company beat estimates but warned, quote, slowing economic growth, inflation, rising interest rates, and currency pressure would pressure customer spending. And of course, there's more to Dell than just hardware, also plenty of software, uh, networking, etc. Well, one positive sign, operating income up 68% year over year, a company record $1.8 billion. Uh, profitability looking okay there, D, but you know some signals on consumer, but we had already sort of expected that. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, we saw Dell perhaps bounce up a little bit um, it, it's actually positive so far, far up nearly 3%. After Best Buy reported that they're going to actually hold to their full year target. Yes, the consumer is weaker than it was, but at least somewhat stable. Yeah, and the stock's kind of been all over the place this morning, pretty volatile. With these hardware companies, it really comes down to, is the earnings good or is it just less bad than expected? In terms of Dell, um, and tell me if you disagree, this is more of a supply story than a demand story. Next year, fiscal year, revenue still to decline double digits year over year. I think that's worse than the street was expected. But half of that outperformance came from lower costs for components and logistics in the quarter, Carl. So a reversal of these supply chain issues is helping the company. But that central question of demand um, still not exactly positive. 
Yeah, although a, a, a tough macro, uh, at least some argue today, D, uh, is an environment in which Dell can outperform. I know Wamzi Mohan over at B of A today says they can take share, uh, outgrow PC server and storage markets uh, and take some share from competitors. That might be the silver lining on the stock today. Yeah, yeah well, she- well, but I got to disagree on it being more a supply story. I think demand is definitely the issue as they're talking about some customers, particularly on the enterprise side, pushing out some orders, others uh, that, that need the IT to run still doing it. And then, of course, we see consumer demand way down from where it was just on the right. PC side. So maybe it was more of a supply story before. It's more of a demand story now, but Dell is managing to be profitable. It's being run efficiently enough that they're confident right. they can weather it. I think that's what I meant. The positivity is coming from the supply side, but that core question of demand still soft there. One other thing I thought was interesting is financial services arm. Um, origins increasing 17%, also a sign of what's going on in the macro. Customers move to preserve cash and finance more of their IT purchases, so that helped the company out. Shares now up 3%. Let's turn to Zoom, though, another mover after the bell they reported last night. The stock is now on pace for its worst day since August after issuing weaker-than-anticipated guidance for the full fiscal year, despite beating expectations for the quarter, the pandemic darling pointing to macro headwinds as a key reason for its slowing growth. But CEO Eric Yuan also warned that Zoom is facing, quote, heightened deal scrutiny for new business as competition climbs in the space. The dip today placing Zoom among the week, the biggest week to date laggards on the Nasdaq 100. And it is driving the Wisdom Tree Cloud Computing Index towards its fifth consecutive day in the red Um, I want to point to one chart out of Zoom earnings, guys, and it is the amount of stock-based compensation. Um, What a huge number, doubling year over year in the quarter and year to date, um, nearly tripling. So this is a company, like many others, I will say, in the software and tech space that spent a lot of money on stock-based compensation. But if we can get the chart up, you can see just how much it has climbed over the last few years. Um, And John raises questions about the bundle, right? We talk about competition. You have the likes of Cisco and Microsoft and Google able to offer video conferencing software, which is, of course, Zoom strength is trying to diversify into areas like calendar. But a lot of companies already have that figured out. Um, No, I mean, a lot of companies supposedly had video communication figured out. And then along came Zoom. And this is still uh, a company that's got a high teens market cap at the very least. There's some things they can do. I don't know. I'm not I'm not trying to make a call on Zoom. Not my job. But I I think the fact that they can I continue to use Zoom. I've got access to teams. I've got access to to WebEx, et cetera. They've got a loyal customer base. They've got good technology. I think they endured a, a heady time. I still remember standing next to Eric Yuan on the day of their IPO at NASDAQ, and he was uh, feeling a little, um, I don't know, he seemed a little queasy about how quickly the, <laughs> the stock price was moving up. Well, he doesn't have that to worry about anymore. <laughs> now he may be queasy on, on the other sense. Right, but now, now he can focus on building the business from about the point where the stock was at the IPO. And, um, and it's an enterprise business more than consumer, clearly, despite what we went through in the pandemic. Now our next guest have different takes on the software space. Baird maintaining an outperform rating, but lowering their price target on Zoom, citing lower free cash flow ahead, while our second guest believes productivity stocks like Zoom will benefit from cost cutting, along with names like Salesforce and Atlassian. Joining us now, Baird Senior Research Analyst Will Power and Mighty Capital 
founding managing partner, S.C. Moadi. Uh, we'll start with you. I mean, I'm, I'm curious about what Zoom 3.0 perhaps might look like at this point. Things relatively stable, one might argue, but not on that rocket ship trajectory that we saw during the pandemic. Do, what do you like about what you see here and what are your major concerns? Yeah, John, great questions. Thanks for having me and, and good morning and happy Thanksgiving uh, later this week. Look, I mean, needless to say, it wasn't a, a, a stellar um, outlook yesterday from Zoom. The quarter actually was okay, but I think there were two things that have contributed to the weakness um, today. Uh, you know, A, there were some leading indicators as it pertains to growth for next year that raised concerns, and then B, much higher stock-based compensation, which, you know, when things aren't going quite as well, gets a greater, you know, focus uh, from investors. And so I think those are really contributing to the weakness. But look, longer term, for us, this is all about, you know, the platform leadership and added capabilities around Zoom phone, contact center, other items they introduced recently uh, at Zoomtopia, their, their big customer event. Couple of what what continues to be strong cash flow, but but look near term, there's no question they continue to, you know, face some of the the uh, pandemic you know hangover um, elements. SC is your bet more on the best of breed players like a Zoom, like an Atlassian in this environment where where so many have to figure out who's going to win the next generation of collaboration, or is it more on the platforms like Microsoft, like uh, Salesforce? Where's the biggest opportunity now? Yes, my personal thesis for investing is that the best product wins. So at the beginning of the pandemic, Zoom was a clear winner. Since then, uh, tools like Microsoft and, and Cisco have made great strides to improve their products. So the bets are off. But the truth is that if you're looking to build a portfolio that's going to outperform in the long term, you want to look for companies that are helping uh, businesses reduce costs, boost productivity. And my, my bet is we're going to see a lot of these SaaS companies realign their messaging in order to support that, you know, cost cutting, ROI model, productivity boost, so that they can turn or, turn the corner and, and get their revenue back up. Hey, Will, I'm not sure uh, Zoom is considered a, a canary uh, in terms of the overall space, but there has been some discussion today about the fact that CrowdStrike's coming up, uh, Snow uh, and some other names into it, and that they better be good, otherwise software as a whole might come under fresh pressure. You agree? Yeah, no, I, th I think that's right. I mean, look, I mean, you know, Zoom fits within the unified communication space as opposed to enterprise software broadly. But, you know, they're still subject to some of the same key trends and they're seeing lengthening sales cycles in some cases. You know, per, per the previous comments, though, you know, they're a platform that actually helps lower total cost of ownership. Right. And so there are some places where, you know, they could, in fact, you know, benefit. But but clearly, as we indicated earlier, still facing Kind of that, that so-called pandemic um, hangover and, and slowing growth. Look, as it pertains to upcoming names, yeah, we still have high expectations for Snowflake um, in particular. I think a lot of the trends around cloud data, you know, remain positive. And despite slowing growth from some of the hyperscalers like Microsoft Azure, AWS, et cetera, early in the earnings reporting cycle, many of the data cloud names have continued to post, you know, very encouraging trends. And so I think some of those cloud data leaders are still well positioned as we head into the next couple of weeks. Essie, as we continue to see valuations come down, how are you thinking about consolidation in the enterprise software space? There's a bit from Zoom's earnings, 209,000 enterprise customers. That was actually up from the previous quarter. That could be attractive to a bigger tech company. And you saw Stuart Butterfield sell, sell Slack to 
Salesforce. Do you think that that could be in the cards for Eric Yuan? I think it's a possibility. I, I'm not sure the company is interested in, in doing something like this. But what we're seeing is post-pandemic, a new wave of innovation where companies like Salesforce and Adobe ride sort of the cloud innovation wave that started about 20 years ago. Post-pandemic, we're seeing companies take advantage of AI, of analytics. Uh, so the winners of tomorrow over the long term, we think are more like Atlassian, Amplitude, that type of new emerging platform. And my take is Zoom is probably one of the newer platforms. Well, what about you? Where do you, how are you thinking about consolidation and where do you think it would come from? Is it other tech players or would it be the private equity funds that are looking more at more take private deals? Yeah, yeah it's that's true. Great, I was going to say, that's Sorry, a great question. question. Yeah, it's, uh, look, I mean, I think as you look at, you know, Zoom and the unified communication space within broader software, we haven't seen private equity interest yet. That doesn't mean it couldn't happen. I think there are a number of interesting strategic fits. I mean, I you know there are opportunities, uh, whether you know it could be Salesforce or it could be an Oracle, names that have kind of dabbled in communication software, and where some of the names like Zoom, I think probably could be an interesting fit. You know, investors have also focused on whether Zoom itself could be a buyer of assets. Of course, it made a run of five nine at one point. Um, it has a nice balance sheet with over five billion dollars of cash and generates good free cash flow. I, my suspicion is. It would be more of a tuck-in variety as opposed to something bigger. But I do think longer term, Zoom could be an interesting fit with a bigger enterprise software entity. All right. Well, SC, thank you. Thanks for having me. Meantime, FTX is headed to Delaware Bankruptcy Court. We'll get more on that story with one of the company's creditors next. Tech Check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Get a gut check on Tesla today. Stocks on pace for the worst month ever, dropping more than 25% in November. Elon Musk's Twitter takeover, renewed concerns about COVID restrictions in China, just some of the headwinds putting pressure on the stock. Tesla shares also on pace for their worst year ever since their debut in 2010, down more than 50% since January and set to break a five-year win streak. Uh, John, we had a lot of discussion this morning about just what Tesla is right now. Is it reflecting competition from GM and Ford, uh, weakness in China? Is it a proxy for how much Musk may have to sell in the future to fund his Twitter ops? Or is it a proxy for how much people believe that Elon Musk can pull 
another rabbit out of his hat. And he has done it so many times in the past, D. But, you know, he didn't want Twitter. Well, first he wanted Twitter. Then he didn't want Twitter. <laughs> then he ended up having to have Twitter. And now the question is, can he run Twitter up the mountain as opposed to into the ground? More doubt around the Elon Musk brand just out there in right. general. Perhaps that's what's being reflected also in Tesla's stock. And that's where his focus is. Carl, you had a fascinating conversation this morning with Phil about um, how much of it, how much of the story is around Elon Musk himself tweeting about the company, right? The company famously doesn't spend anything on marketing. So he does drive a lot of that hype. And you saw the share price, what, up 700% over the last three years, but essentially flat over the last two. Um, will be fascinating to keep watching. Meanwhile, let's dive back into FTX, that first bankruptcy hearing underway in Delaware with billions at stake for creditors and customers alike. The company owes its top 50 creditors more than $3 billion combined. Our next guest, well, he is the CEO of one of those creditors who partnered with FTX back in 2019 to monitor suspicious transaction alerts. Joining us now, Chainalysis co-founder and CEO Michael Groninger. Michael, thanks for being with us this morning. Can you tell our audience the extent of your exposure to FTX? How much do they owe you? You were actually quite surprised to see ourselves under this, uh, but uh, they're a customer of ours, so of course you become a creditor in that, in that uh, extent. I can't share the exact number, but I can just say like they're a regular like medium to smaller customer of ours, and uh, in that extent you become a creditor, that's very long down the list. Why can't you give us the number? And I also wonder, Michael, did you accept payment in FTT or any other tokens? Do you accept tokens generally as a form of payment for many of your customers? No. So we always had the policy in analysis that we don't accept tokens. We only accept U.S. dollars. We do accept Bitcoin, but they are converted on spot at the time when they transact into, into U.S. dollars. So we only hold and accept U.S. dollar payments from customers. And the reason why I don't want to get into to the number is that, like, we don't share our prices and we don't share like details around our customer contracts. Uh, Michael, good to see you again. Um, we, we spoke some time ago. And since your business is sort of forensic analysis of what's happened on the blockchain, I imagine you're getting quite a few calls trying to understand what the fallout from FTX is. How much systemic risk is there within crypto, you think, um, that, that's being exposed during this period of time where from stable coins to uh, FTX and Genesis, et cetera, we're seeing dominoes fall. So I think like the extent of the risk, but like, what I say back, said back in the times of, of Celsius and Three Arrows is that dominoes, when, when markets like go down, we have, a, we have a bear market, we definitely see that there's been leverage in, in the market so far. And when that happens, then one domino falls, another one falls after, and another one falls maybe six months after that. And that's what we saw right now. This was a, a, by far the biggest domino that fell right now. And if you look at the rest of the market participants, there's like different kinds of, uh, of risk associated to this, right? So, so we have indirect exposure from people who, who will trust Bitcoin, who will get a, 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 like attached to the different prices of crypto. And at the same time, we have direct exposure from those who have funds uh, directly as so, like on the, on the FX, FTX exchange. And now they are very liquid and very hard to get, get hands on. And that will probably cause a little bit of more um, like downfall in, in the industry. But it's hard to, to assess exactly how much because many of these things are not on chain. Many of these deals are actually happening more like, let me use this as a collateral with you and then I get a loan from here. 
And I can't see that on a blockchain because it's not on chain. Hmm. Right. And so it's, it's partly the leverage in the system, I guess, is, is what you're saying. And, and leverage that's partly based on coins that have as much value as people believe that it has. I've used the Chuck E. Cheese token uh, metaphor before and some crypto fans got insulted. But I think it's more relevant than ever today. How long is it going to take to unwind the amount of, or uncover, I should say, the amount of leverage that's in the system that in some cases is going to amplify the effects of these dominoes falling? So it's usually, the effect of these things usually takes several months to uncover, right? So it takes a while to figure out where, where, what is the size, what are the impacts, and so on. And we have seen in the press recently that other companies have come out and said, like, we had a big exposure to this, this will mean this and that. And some have like said we have big exposure and we actually still don't know what it means. So that takes some months to uncover and figure out. And then there can be, as usual, there can be more hiding. Uh, we didn't know that uh, the exposure that, that FTX had to, uh, to three arrows, but that became pretty clear right now. So we definitely see that there might be other things hiding. So a couple of months it usually takes before there's a good understanding of, of, uh, of the size of this. Michael, so your company um, provides compliance and investigation software to, quote, hundreds of top institutions. But the biggest scandal in crypto was right under your nose with one of your own customers. How do you think about protecting customers or your clients from potential bad actors in the space? And how much do you know about your own customers? So what we know about our customers, our customers buy our compliance uh, solutions. For example, transaction monitoring, they want to ensure that their customers are not involved in criminal activity in one way or the other. So that's basically the, the involvement we have with our customer. So we cannot say whether, they are in, whether their balance sheet is okay, and we would not do that check. It's very similar to if you take a company like AWS or any other cloud provider that might have a big, be a bigger creditor than ours, they would not go in and check the balance sheet of, of customers. They simply assume that, that uh, businesses are liquid, and especially when you see them backed by big names and, uh, and have like, a lot of interest around them. Okay, understood. And so for the whole industry then, it's becoming clear that partial audits, even partial proof, proof of reserves are not enough to really understand the balance sheets. Not that that is your job, as you say, but are you pushing for this, for more of your customers, more in the industry to publish more information, have more transparency? I, I, I'm a definitely an advocate for that, and I also think that, that that goes hand in hand with like what we what we see with FTX, right? This is this is departed for everyone, and that's something that concerns me deeply. When I see that people lose money or get their money locked up for many many years while the bankruptcy basically unfolds, so it's something that I'm pushing for. Do auditing, uh, ideally have regulation around that we do stuff like that because that's that's what we need. We need to ensure that that people have the money when they claim to. Yeah, certainly. The whole industry. Michael, thank you very much. Michael Groninger. Chainalysis, see ya. You got an expensive streaming business, a murky theatrical outlook, and no succession plan. Bob Iger's got a tough next chapter at Disney. We're going to discuss it in a moment. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com.
Designed for work. It has only been a day officially, but Disney's Bob Iger already making changes at the company after taking back the helm from his successor turned predecessor, Bob Chapek. But given a slew of challenges on the horizon, including a new succession plan, will he be able to pull it off? Julia Borston joins us with more. Julia? Well, he's certainly moving quickly. Bob Iger already firing a top executive and announcing that the restructuring is already in the works. He says their restructuring aims to, quote, honor and respect creativity as the heart and soul of who we are. In a reversal of Bob Chapek's separation of content creation and distribution into two separate divisions, he's fired Kareem Daniel. He ran Media and Entertainment Distribution, or DMED. In a memo, Iger saying that he's asked General Entertainment Chairman Dana Walden, Studio Chief Alan Bergman, ESPN Chairman Jimmy Pitaro, and CFO Christine McCarthy to design a new structure that puts decision-making back in the hands of creative teams and rationalizes costs, saying they aim to have this new structure in place in the coming months, saying, quote, I fundamentally believe that storytelling is what fuels this company and it belongs at the center of how we organize our businesses. Now the spotlight turns to those executives that Iger mentioned and the board's imperative that he develop a successor. One thing that he failed to do in his repeatedly delayed retirement when he was running Disney previously. Deutsche Bank underscoring the importance of a focus on content, writing that the decision to reinstate Iger was all about lack of confidence in Chapek's creative leadership, saying of Iger's finding a successor, quote, there just aren't any other Bob Igers out there. Perhaps this time they'll start with the creative leader they're seeking and try to develop the rest of that individual's skills over the next two years. One name that could fit the bill, General Entertainment Chair Dana Walden. But one thing's for sure, as this all happens, Iger is showing he's moving very quickly to drive change and boost morale. Back over to you. A pretty good look at what he's got to do here, Julia. You know, everybody's surmising about potential asset sales, obviously the binary question about Hulu, uh, ongoing cost-cutting, revising the long-term DTC targets. Are, do you expect news on those fronts in the near term, or is there so much to be done mending relationships both in and out of the company that that's going to be more of a longer-term story? Well, look, there are all these different pieces of this. I mean, one thing we know is that the ad supported Disney Plus is launching in just a couple of weeks. That's coming up on December 8th. Um, another thing to keep in mind is that Iger uh, it might take a different approach to pricing at the parks than JPEG did. You know, JPEG recently raised pricing at the parks again. Um, and the pricing of the parks has continued to rise. It'll be really interesting to see if maybe Iger rolls out some discounts at the parks um, or at least halts that that constant uh, increase in prices we've seen in recent years. So I think as we see consumer spending come under pressure, that's going to be something to watch. Another thing just to keep an eye on here is the strategy around what content goes to, to theaters um, and what content goes direct to Disney+. Plus. Disney ha does have one other massive uh, theatrical release coming up this year, and that is the Avatar sequel. That's important as a franchise for the company and was another one of the crown jewels that was acquired as part of that Fox acquisition. So I think Iger is going to continue to move quickly, but the fact that he announced that this restructuring process has already kicked off indicates that he really wants to engage with his deputies to make sure that they're creating a structure that can continue to exist for years to come, not just for the right. next few years. He's trying to set this company up for success for a lot for the long run. 
I'm probably pretty safe to, to guess that the next CEO isn't going to come from the parks business. I'm just, I'm just out on a limb there. But um, the, a quote that concerns me is that analysts quote, there just aren't any other Bob Igers out there. Isn't that the problem, right, succession-wise here? Is that well, at least but John, that that's remember the perception. when Bob Iger started... Yes, but remember, and by the way, there's a great book written on this um, by by James Stewart, who is a contributor to CNBC called Disney Wars. When Bob Iger started, he was not Bob Iger either. And so, you know, there's a history of people having to grow into their roles. And I think that's the question but is Julia, who can grow into this position? No one is Bob Iger now. But two years is not a long time to grow into anything. If you don't already have the pieces in your resume to take over from Bob Iger, minus maybe one more piece, in two years, are you really going to be able to get it? So isn't part of his role to well, elevate other people to the point where, uh, in, yeah. among his leadership team, investors, employees, others have confidence in them, and we stop hearing this, there just aren't any other Bob Iger's. And, and, and that's the thing. I would say just remember, Bob Iger was not Bob Iger when he started 15 years um, his 15-year reign as CEO the first time around. Dana Walden, the reason why people are pointing to her is she has the creative chops. She has good relationships with talent, um, very well respected. She also could be put into a position now, maybe as part of this restructuring, where she would have um, more of a business role as well. And then I, I do have to note, you know, you said they won't have another um, Parks executive in the CEO role. Josh Damaro, who is currently running Parks, he's very well liked, seen as sort of more dynamic than Bob Tapek was. I do think there is that question of whether or not um, the board would be reluctant of putting a Parks guy in charge of the content businesses as well. But he is, he is, you know, definitely one of the names that from a sort of strategic point, he's the right age um, and he's very well liked. But I do think you're right that um, the board would probably look for more of a content person. And then, of course, John, what if there's an if there's a big deal? Would Iger look to do some sort of M&A that could bring in someone that might be well positioned to take over at this point? I think with a regulatory landscape, I'm not looking at a at an, a big Apple Disney merger. But I do think it's interesting to speculate about what kind of M&A could potentially be sort of an aqua hire type situation. Yeah, it's always interesting to speculate. That's we do it pretty well, uh, Julia. That's a, that's a great chat. Let's continue the conversation. Our next guest says he expects investors uh, to be happy with Iger's return, but he does not believe a lack of leadership is Disney's problem. Joining us this morning, Cowan analyst Doug Kreutz, who maintained his market perform rating on the name. Doug, he had a great piece yesterday, uh, got widely quoted uh, in the trades and the papers. Basically, uh, we do not see or we, don't, we do not view Iger's return as necessarily a sign of better times to come. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, Disney's got structural issues, right? And a lot of those structural issues uh, predate Bob Chapek. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest ones was that uh, when, when Bob Iger decided he wanted to buy the Fox Entertainment assets uh, back in, in 2016, it was. Uh, that changed Disney pretty fundamentally from being a company that was solely focused on branded family entertainment to one that was had a lot of focus on general entertainment as well. And that was sort of part of his um, run up to launching their streaming strategy. Um, you know, the valuation of media assets since that deal happened has come way down for uh, well chronicled reasons. It's hard to argue that Rupert Murdoch didn't vastly get the better end of that deal. And having Bob Iger in charge of those assets or Bob Chapek in charge of those assets, I don't know that it changes the underlying reality that 
those assets are struggling. Yeah, and your, your broader point, I mean, it, we've been having this debate about Disney since the days of Touchstone. Uh, is it stronger to be concentrated in core Disney fare or be more general? Your argument is that you, they, not only did they not need the Fox assets, you called it a strategic error on Iger's part, but are, you thought it, we thought it was priced too low that the consumer base will pay up even if it is for a narrower range of product. Yeah, look, there's an alternate universe where they didn't buy Fox and they launched Disney Plus at a, at a somewhat higher price with uh, somewhat less aggressive content spending out of the gate. It, it certainly wouldn't be as widely distributed as it is now, but I think it would still be pretty widely distributed. And, you know, you look at people who like Marvel and Star Wars content, they're probably pretty price inelastic. And I think, you know, a lot of parents of kids would have gotten it regardless. Uh, Disney Plus would be probably in a much more profitable spot, still growing. The business as a whole would be in a more profitable spot and far less leveraged. And I think they would have a much, they'd be in a much stronger position to deal with all the headwinds that are hitting media right now than, than, they, than they are in, in the actual world we inhabit. So, Doug, does Bob Iger actually need to solve the structural problems and show better profitability? Or does the street give him a pass because he's the better creative guy? And what does that mean for succession plans? Is the street going to be any more patient with his successor than they have been with JPEG? Yeah, I, you know, again, I don't know that there's any kind of magic wand he can wave. I mean, he says he wants to get the, fo the company's focus back on creativity. You know, if I look at Disney's output over the last couple of years, the movies have certainly done quite well. Black Panther, uh, Wakanda Forever just had a massive opening weekend. Um, you know, the, the, the content that's come to Disney Plus hasn't, hasn't all been great, but certainly, you know, The Mandalorian has been very good. Uh, Loki and WandaVision, you know, several shows that were quite good. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think Kevin Feige's getting marching orders necessarily from Bob Chapek or was. So I, I don't, you know, I don't know that there's some dramatic change that's going to make things suddenly run a lot better. Um, as far as, you know, the street's going to give him some time, obviously, but if he's true to his word, he's only going to be for, the, for two years. He doesn't have that much time. Uh, the other issue is then whoever comes in to re-replace Bob Iger is going to be looking over their shoulder from day one, given the short hook that JPEG got. Yeah, if in, if in fact it's limited to two years. There's so many interesting questions we're going to be tossing around uh, for the uh, extended future, Doug. Look forward to next time. Thank you. Doug Kreutz Thank you. Uh, over at Cowan today. Let's get a news update this morning uh, with our Contessa Brewer. Hi, Contessa. Hi there, Carl. Here's what's happening right now. Best Buy is surging after reporting demand for electronic gadgets fell less than expected. The retailer also raised guidance and resumed stock buybacks. American Eagle Outfitters reported a surprise quarterly profit and a big drop in inventory levels. Abercrombie & Fitch also posted strong numbers, including a margin beat and raised guidance. Shares of both retailers are soaring now more than 15%. Medtronic stock is falling 6% after posting weak results and cutting earnings guidance. The medical device maker says it's still facing supply chain issues and a slow recovery in the overall volume of medical procedures using its equipment. And the global economy will grow just 2.2% next year, according to a key forecast from the OECD. The group sees U.S. and Eurozone growth of just half a percent. Higher inflation and Russia's war in Ukraine are among the reasons for the predicted slowdown in growth. John?
Contessa, thank you. Mm -hmm. Amazon reportedly losing billions on Alexa, and those losses might be growing, but is that really a problem? We will discuss next. Reports out this morning on the state of Amazon's Alexa business. One of the first spots to see layoffs as the company pledges to cut costs. Employees telling Business Insider the company's worldwide digital segment, which does include everything from Echo Smart Speakers and Alexa to Prime Video, operated at a $3 billion loss in the first quarter this year, and losses are growing. One employee even going as far as calling Alexa, quote, a colossal failure of imagination. John, we've talked to uh, the device chief for a long time, uh, but it does seem like the locus of the cutbacks are going to be centered in that area. Yeah, I mean, that might be. This is funny to me because a few years ago, so many people were saying, oh, why didn't Apple invent the Echo and Alexa? Innovation is gone at Apple. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Look, Apple's actually selling hardware at a profit, which is a very different business than what Amazon's doing. And this isn't actually a diss on Alexa. I think people, investors in particular, need to remember Alexa's not really a business. It's a driver of usage. It's like mm -hmm. Netflix's content spend, frankly. You know, uh, it's, it's a loss leader in a sense, mm -hmm. but it gives Amazon more data signal into what people are interested in. It's a play in search. That's not to say that they can't afford to cut it back, especially as yeah. times shift and they might want to invest elsewhere. But I don't think it's fair to judge this as a hardware business because, in a way, the assistance you know, combined with Kindle, combined with some other things, are hardware businesses. But these are underlying technologies that are meant to drive usage and, uh, and mm -hmm. quicker learning, D. So I agree with you in that Alexa was always supposed to be part of this Amazon flywheel, support the other pillars like Prime and e-commerce. Um, but what I might dispute is the quality of that data. I mean, in my household, we use Alexa to set alarms and access my Spotify music. We don't use it for things to shop on Amazon.com. We've never watched anything on it, despite having the show version. Um, so I think maybe it raises questions about the usefulness and what data, Carl, that it's actually getting here. And that's one of the things, you know, we've asked in the past, David Limp, you know, what are people using it for? And they say, sure, there's going to be more. They're offering more. That is certain, even games and trivia. But even that is frustratingly slow, at least in my household. You end up using it just for this very narrow set of actions that I'm not sure is driving that flywheel. Uh, yeah, we're going to find out. Obviously, the, the whole retail operation and the tougher macro is a totally different story as well. Got some more market action ahead. We got stable uh, gains this morning. Dow's up about 275. Take a look at some of the big laggards on the NASDAQ today as we have seen some weakness uh, in elements of retail. Dollar Tree there on the heels of their results opened uh, lower this morning as well. Back in two. For chip stock softening and demand coupled with higher inventories, which could mean some big write downs ahead. Christina Partsenevelis joins us with a look at the names most at risk. Christina, what'd you find? Well, what we know is that inventories once again increased over the last quarter, and that's leaving fabulous chip makers with a dilemma. Should they keep stockpiling, cut those prices, and then sell, or do they cancel slash delay orders and then take a big write-down? So Analog Devices says their bookings and backlogs are holding up better than most in the industry. I was on the earnings call that was just about an hour ago, and the CFO said they have opted for higher inventory levels to reduce lead times. They expect inventory to actually, quote, increase in the near 
term. So they're on that path, while other companies have opted for write downs because they are unable to utilize the supply that they committed to. Take, for example, Corvo. They took a $110 million charge against their commitment because they simply didn't need the chip products. Other firms are stuck with large purchase commitments due in the next 12 months. Qualcomm, for example, has over $13 billion due in the next 12 months, accounting for 70% of its cost of a good sold. You can see other names on your screen like NVIDIA, AMD, Marvell. They all have large, you know, 20% more commitments just due in the next year or so. So for those investors watching right now worried about stockpiling or write-downs, Wells Fargo actually suggests software and IP chip stocks like Cadence Design Systems and Synopsys, which right now you can see is outperforming the S&P 500 year-to-date. They are also bullish on names with smaller purchase commitments and larger exposure to the auto sector, like on semi and wolf speed, for example, because the auto sector is considered uh, to be holding up a little bit better than end consumer segments like PCs and smartphones. John. Christina, thank you. The chip industry also facing a PC slump, stricter controls on what it can export to China, but AMD is making big strides by diversifying its approach. CNBC's Katie Tarasov has this deep dive on CEO Lisa Su's momentum and bets on a new approach to design. It's known for computing, but now it's branching out. Its chips are inside Tesla's, the Mars Land Rover, 5G cell towers, and the world's fastest supercomputer. They used to be sort of under the covers. People didn't realize that chips were so important. And I think what the pandemic has done is it just reminded people, and you really highlighted uh, why chips are so enabling to everything that we do. AMD only has major competition from two other companies when it comes to designing the most advanced microprocessors, Intel in CPUs, central processing units, and NVIDIA in GPUs, graphics processing units. While AMD controls far less market share than Intel in CPUs and NVIDIA in GPUs, AMD made history this year when it surpassed Intel's massive market cap for the first time ever. I think AMD is beating Intel on all the metrics that matter. And unless Intel can fix its manufacturing, they will continue to do that. It may be the most wonderful time of the year, but not for shippers like UPS and FedEx, who face growing headwinds as e-commerce volumes soften and consumers continue to pull back amid higher prices. Our Frank Holland joins us with the breakdown this morning. Hey, Frank. Hey, good morning, Carl. Uh, 90 million packages per day in e-commerce. That's the forecast for this holiday peak from Black Friday to Christmas. That would actually be flat year over year. We're at the UPS Smart Hub outside of Atlanta, where they say they're already seeing holiday-like levels and they're preparing for any surge using a combination of automation, like this truck that you see over here behind me, and of course, human workers. So the question is, is there gonna be a big holiday surge? Executives say they're ready for it, but analysts say there's questions about the volumes for that holiday surge actually coming. Over the last few years, big retail shippers being charged surcharges for volume over uh, pre-holiday volumes. That really boosted the bottom line for both UPS and FedEx. There's also questions about on-time delivery. On-time delivery directly impacts margin. A big deal for this industry. For the last six weeks, UPS at 97% on-time delivery. Anything over 95%, that's pretty good. I also spoke to UPS about what they're doing here on the ground as far as holiday peak hiring. They said they're still planning to hire 100,000 seasonal workers to prepare for the first post-pandemic peak. 
If the volume increases, we have the capacity through technology and through the use of automation to make sure that we deliver on time. And then if the volume does not materialize, we're able to sort of make sure that we operate efficiently and effectively and still provide the same value to, to our customers. So again, UPS says they're ready for any surge, but over capacity, that might end up being the story of this holiday peak. According to Ship Matrix, there's approximately 20% more capacity available than is actually needed. And that overcapacity, especially when it comes to the post office, is creating an opportunity for new e-commerce entrants, including Quiet Logistics, which is a subsidiary of American Eagle, and also Pitney Bowes. Now, to be clear, they're not true competitors, but they could grab some of that incremental volumes that could be very crucial to both revenues and margin this holiday season for UPS and FedEx. Right, and some market market share, too, along with that. Frank Holland, thanks so much. It will be fascinating to see it plays out, especially UPS versus FedEx versus even Amazon, the elephant in the room. Thank you. Meanwhile, Microsoft is the new top pick for hedge funds. More on that story. And who came in second after a break? Tech Check is back in just a moment. thing, hedge funds have a new top pick, and that is Microsoft, according to new data from Goldman Sachs, passing Amazon as a stock with the most long hedge fund positions. That report coming on the heels of a new interview from Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella with Nikkei Asia, saying the company's cloud business is still, quote, saturated for more growth, even in a global slowdown, and pulling no punches with this competition, calling the businesses of Amazon and Google, quote, saturated by comparison. Um, guys, there was a Mizuho note this morning, too, that according to their data checks, Azure edged AWS on total customer public cloud adoption. They're positive there, John. Um, no surprise, though, I suppose. It's, Microsoft has been among the steadiest of the tech names this year. Well, it's diversified in some interesting ways, Carl. I think the narrative is shifting, as, as I've been saying, and some of us have been saying, it, it's not just infrastructure as a service the way this started. Now we got to turn to profitability in a world where you assume the, the cloud is a key part of enterprise. And so does that mean M&A? Does that mean building more vertical stacks? Does it mean best of breed wins out? We'll see. Yeah, uh, companies have tried various options on that menu, but we did have a discussion this morning with uh, David and Jim about how, for a long time, remember how Microsoft was really seen as a bedrock of stability, and overall, the, the pressure that equities came under even brought that name down a touch. We'll see. There's a lot of big names reporting in the coming days. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.